It is well with my soul today, and I hope it is well with your soul today. Uh, it's well with my soul today, not because I've had a particularly good week uh, or a particularly even good day. It's not well with my soul today because I feel good or am happy or things are going my way. It is well with my soul today because Christ has done everything it takes to make it well with my soul, right? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well, right? Even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of trouble, we can say because of Christ and what he has done, it is well with my soul. And really, your soul is the only thing that matters, right? We don't sing songs about it is well with my body. It is well with my schedule, right? We say it is well with my soul because that's what we care about is your soul, right? And then we talk about how the church is built. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. That's good, right? And so we want to hear from God today through his word. Do you have your Bible? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where you need to go. Last week we saw a passage that hinted at the root of the problem in the church at Corinth. Uh, Their divisions and schisms are simply symptoms of a greater problem, and that is their spiritual immaturity. Uh, The text revealed some of Paul's frustration with them. If you remember, he says, I wish I I could share with you solid food, and and I want to talk to you about issues that are more complex and, and deep, but I can't because you're not able to handle them. I've given you milk instead of solid food, and I gave you milk back then because that's all you were ready for, and even now, I still have to give you milk because that's all you're ready for still. And I talked to you about how we all need to respond to this by examining our own spiritual maturity. The question is, have we grown or are we growing? The question that I pose to you kind of in this uh, sense in which I speak to my children is, how old are you? How old are you when you when you overreact to things that don't matter? How old are you when you are not ready to uh, feast on the solid food of Scripture and must only have milk? How old are you? We should be growing, right? If we've been in a relationship with Christ for some time, we should be growing. And that's where this whole text was headed last week, toward maturity, toward growth. We talked about all those things. We talked about how God is the one who brings salvation. God is the one who causes growth. There is no need to put our attention and focus on Apollos or Peter or, or Paul, or any other earthly leader, because all they have done is simply planted seeds or watered seeds. God is the one who causes the growth, and so we look to him, and we find in him our unity. We find in him our focus, and we need to be focusing on him all the time. We talked about how we need to be growing. Uh, we need to be moving. And I talked to you by way of this spiritual examination of our own lives that sometimes we need to see ourselves, all of us need to see ourselves as infants in some ways. I want to guard you, in all my talk last week about spiritual maturity, I want to guard you against pride of that maturity. I don't want any of you to say, oh yeah, I've grown a lot. I, I am really mature and become proud of your maturity. I think the more we grow, the more we realize we need to grow, right? And so I would hope that all of us at at some time, in some ways, do see ourselves as infants, no matter how grown we are. Does that make sense? Other people may look at us and say, oh yeah, he is growing, he is mature, he is an adult who can handle meat and solid food. But I hope we would look at ourselves and say, yeah, but there's so much more I want to know. There's so much more I want to see. There's so much more in scripture that I want to feast on. I hope that we, no matter how mature we are, will constantly be pushing forward to greater, deeper levels of maturity. Does that make sense? This week we're going to see the thought continue to develop. You'll see it become a little more complex. He moves on from the milky picture uh, of the church as a field or the church as a building. And he's going to talk specifically about the church as a temple today. Very interesting stuff. I'll be honest with you, it's hard. There There is a very 
stern and even harsh warning uh, for the church today, and I want us all to feel it. Uh, the danger with a text like this is that we will understand it and we'll look at the people around us. We'll understand what it means and then we'll begin to look and say, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this, or oh, I'm, oh, I'm really glad such-and-such is here to hear this, instead of seeing it as a warning for all of us, right? This is not a warning for a particular person in the church. It is a warning for all of us to guide us in the right paths. Make sense? All right. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 is where we'll start today. He says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for your word. (laughs) It is what we need. It is what we must have. And you have given it to us. And you have given the Holy Spirit to help us understand it, to remind us of other things we've been taught from it. God, we pray today that you do a work that only you can do, that you speak to our hearts and that you change our lives. God, we don't want mere understanding today. We want submission and obedience to your word. But God, we know that that submission and obedience cannot come without understanding. So give us understanding. Give us submission. Give us obedience. Give us grace. Oh, grace. Give us more and more grace for your own glory, for your own sake, God. Work in this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So there are really two big parts of the text today, verses 16 and 17. In some ways, I wish we could just spend all of our time there, spend a whole week there, handle that, and then do verse 18 and following later on. But we're going to get it all today. We're going to spend most of our time with 16 and 17, though. If you notice, he introduces verse 16 with this phrase, Do you not know? And you're going to see that throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to use that phrase ten times. Ten times in 1 Corinthians, he's going to introduce an idea with this phrase, do you not know, or have you not heard, something along those lines. He only does that in one other place in all of his writings. Paul wrote a lot, right? A lot of the New Testament was written by Paul, and only one other time outside of 1 Corinthians does he use this phrase. And so what that teaches us is that in 1 Corinthians, when he uses that phrase, we need to pay careful attention. He's about to say something big. It's kind of like in John's Gospel when Jesus introduces a saying with, truly, truly, I say to you. Remember that? If you've studied through John's Gospel, you will see over and over again, Jesus introduces a significant teaching with the phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians with this idea of have you not heard or do you not know. And there's a little bit of application in that for us. Even in that phrase, have you not heard or do you not know. The, The bottom line is that a lot of times our disobedience, a lot of times our rebellion is a product of our ignorance. Sometimes we do not know what we're supposed to do, and so we cannot follow him. And sometimes we should know what we're supposed to do, but we don't. Does that make sense to you? And I think that's part of what he's dealing with here, is that these people should have heard this. These people should know these things, but they don't. And so he's about to inform them once again. Uh, Notice in verse 16, and you really won't see this in English, um, one one of the weaknesses of uh, proper English anyway, is that there is no plural you 
you in, in English is, 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 looks the same. Whether we're talking about you as an individual or whether we're talking about you as a plural, all of the yous, I'm going somewhere with this, all of the yous in verse 16 are plural, okay? This is one of the great benefits of the time I spent in Mississippi. In Mississippi, they have a plural you. Y'all. And I'm totally convinced that we should adopt that as proper English because it would help make sense of some things, right? Uh, we should use that in biblical translations. There should be a southern translation of the Bible, I think. And so it would read like this. Do y'all not know that y'all are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in y'all? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that's what y'all are. Does that make sense? That's the way it goes here. These yous in Greek are plural. He's talking not to an individual. He's talking to the group. He's not saying in this text that you as an individual are the temple of God. We could, we could track that. We could go with that. In fact, a lot of preachers would at this text say we need to be very careful as individuals how we treat our physical bodies because we as individuals are the temple of God, that our physical bodies are the temple of God, and we need to be very careful how we manage our physical bodies because we are the temple of God. That is a legitimate application uh, partly of this text, but definitely of chapter 6. Okay, In chapter 6, we'll go down that road. In chapter 6, we'll go down that road of your individual life, your individual physical body as the temple of God, okay? But here, I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think that's primarily what's going on in this text. Primarily, he's talking to the church. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the individuals that comprise the church, okay? And I would, I would argue that from the language from the actual words that are used here, namely those plural yous, and I would also argue that from the context of chapter 3. He has not been talking to individuals to this point. He's been talking to the church, right? He's been talking to us as a collective body. And so what we need to see here is that he speaks to us, he speaks to us as the people of God assembled, and he says, y'all, y'all are the temple of God. That is huge. That is so big. Do you realize what that means? Do you realize what that means? That means God is here. God is here with us now. He's here. That should either excite you or terrify you. Or maybe both at the same time, right? To think that God is here, uh, an old preacher, I can't remember his name, used to stand up every once in a while and say, oh, well, I've got good news and bad news for you. Good news is God is here. Bad news is God is here. And it depends really on where you stand with him, whether that's good news or bad news, right? Some of us sing, like we just did a minute ago, about the second coming of Christ, that the, that the clouds will part, right? And he will descend with a, with a shout from heaven, with the trumpet of God. We sing about that and we say, yes, woo, that's going to be a good day for some of us. That's going to be a great day, right? For the rest of the world, though, that is a terrifying day, a day of judgment, Depends on where you stand with God, whether his presence here is a good thing or a bad thing. And that's what Paul's going to get at in the text today, really, is where you stand with him. It's interesting, the words that he uses in this text, when he uses this plural you, he says, do y'all not know that y'all are the temple of God? And that word temple probably is a reference to the temple at Jerusalem. Um, but it's not just a reference to the temple at Jerusalem, because that would definitely limit his audience, um, because the, the Gentile pagans wouldn't understand about the temple in Jerusalem. 
But even Gentile pagans had some understanding of temples. They had temples for their gods. And they understood that those temples were very special and sacred places. And the word that he uses here specifically for temple is not a word that just generally describes the temple. It describes the most holy part of a temple. Right? We know a little bit about the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, how it had the outer courts, right? And then it had this outer room that was called the holy place. And then it had this central room that was called the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And that's where the Spirit of God, the presence of God was, right? That's the reference he's making here. He says that you are that. You're not the outer courts. You're not even the middle section. You are the innermost holy part of the temple. This is where God's presence is, right? And then he defends why he can say that. How can he say that we are the temple of God? Well, the bottom line is because the Spirit of God resides in us, right? That's what makes the Holy of Holies special is because of God's presence, right? And he says, you have that presence within you. Look what he says in the text. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you know that? Did you know that? That we are the temple of God and the, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So when we're together, it's a big deal. The church is a big, big deal. There was no bigger place in, in uh, first century Judaism than the temple. In Judaism, period, the temple was it, right? They made pilgrimages to the temple. They walked up to the temple. They made sacrifices at the temple. All of these things happened at the temple. It was the center of their being. And he says, you are the temple. Y'all are the temple because the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is big news. Big news. He's talking here about the church. Do you not know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Fact. We are the temple. Implication of that fact comes in verse 17. He says, If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. This would be really easy if we were talking just about physical bodies. If we were making just an individual application of this text, this would be really easy to say to you, be careful with your body. Don't put bad things in your body or do bad things to your body because your body is a temple, right? And you need to take care of it and you need to be nice to it and you need to cultivate it as much as you can. That would be easy, right? But that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about us as individuals. He's talking about us collectively. Look what he says. He says, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. And if we see that verse in the context of all that we've learned in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of 1 Corinthians, we will see that one of the ways the church, the temple of God, is being destroyed is through these divisions that the, that the Corinthian people are holding on to and causing, right? It's tearing the church apart. It's destroying the church. And look at this warning. This could not be more serious. Basically, what we have in this verse is a dire warning to those who would seek the destruction of the church. It was intended, the church was intended to dwell in unity in Christ. Anyone who intends to tear it apart should be very careful. In fact, we all should be very careful. Look what he says, and I want you to feel this. He says, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. This is not some small matter. This is not some light-hearted thing. We all must be very careful about how we interact with the church, right? 
We all must be very careful how we interact with the church. There are some people that say, oh, well, does that mean that Paul is teaching that we can lose our salvation, that someone could genuinely have salvation and then uh, disrespect the church or destroy the church and then somehow lose their salvation? No, I don't think that is the case. But I do think there are some who, by their actions toward the church, reveal that although they were outwardly identified with the church, they were never really part of it. Does that make sense to you? And I would take you to Matthew chapter 7 to prove that in one place where Jesus talks to these people at the end time. And they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these things in your name? And you remember what he says to them? Get away from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Just because someone is outwardly identified with the church doesn't mean they're legitimately part of the church. And I think that's who Paul is warning here. Only one who is outside the family would want to destroy the family, would actively seek to destroy the family. In fact, I want you to go to 1 John. I'll show you another place where this is even more clear. 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Actually, we start in verse 18. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Children, a word of affection and love. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. Right? So he's, he's talking about the difference between this character that we've all heard of, the Antichrist, and other characters who are simply Antichrist. They are simply opposed to Christ. He says many, many Antichrists have already appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. And listen to verse 19. He says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. It's what I think we need to understand in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when Paul talks about the one who would destroy the temple of God, who God would in turn destroy. We need to understand that their destruction of the temple of God is manifestation that they were not part of the family. Make sense to you? It's not someone who's legitimately part of the family and then loses their status as a family. Not, not someone who is legitimately saved and converted and then loses their salvation and conversion, but evidence that someone who was never really converted, who would seek to destroy the temple of God. I want you to see that this is a dire, dire warning. One commentator said it this way. He says, what is important to note is that Paul does not take for granted that every church member is a true disciple of Jesus particularly when someone's behavior remains fundamentally contrary to the spirit of unity that the gospel promotes. Now notice in this text that he doesn't say that anyone at Corinth has crossed this line yet. He doesn't point people out like John does. He doesn't point people out like John does and say there are some who have left and proven by their leaving that they were never really of us. Paul doesn't say that anyone has crossed that line yet. And so what you need to see, what you and I all need to appreciate, is that this is a warning for all of us. This is a warning for absolutely all of us. You cannot just mess with the church. You cannot just abuse and tear down the church and expect that all will be merry in the end. It will not. It will not. Let me tell you this. If you were to mess with my wife, it's going to be bad news, right? I'm at least going to try to inflict some pain on you, right? I know I'm not big. I know I'm not strong, but I know some big and strong guys. And if you mess with my wife, there's going to be some kind of reaction from me because I love her so much, right? And I think the same thing is true for the church. 
We belong to Christ. We are his bride. And if you mess with the church, you should expect some retaliation from him. That's exactly what's going on here. Notice what he says. Notice the way he talks about it. He says, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Same word, same verb. If any man destroys the temple of God, which is the church, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So, Paul has, once again, in these verses, attacked the symptom of divisions in the church. And now, in verse 18, he's going to move on to the symptom of wisdom, or lack of wisdom in the church. And what you're going to see him do at the end of chapter 3 is he's going to bring the symptom of divisions and the symptom of lack of wisdom back together to the core root of the disease, which is spiritual immaturity. And then at the very end, he's going to make this glorious and wonderful statement about who we are in Christ. Look what he says. Did you get the warning in verse 17? Do you feel it? Do do we all feel it? We be very careful, very careful about our behavior toward the church. It's not to be messed with. One, One commentator said, he is very patient. God is very patient with us, but he is not to be trifled with. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And then verse 18 shifts gears to wisdom again. He says, let no man deceive himself. He says, don't, don't be mistaken about this. Don't, don't kid yourself. We, we tend to do that, right? We convince ourselves about any number of things. He says, don't deceive yourself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. We've talked about this before, right? Joe and Aaron, I think, both talked about this when I was gone, about this different economy of wisdom that God operates under, right? The world, in its wisdom, foolishness to God, right? The world's foolishness, wisdom to God, right? And so he takes this whole concept of wisdom and foolishness that the world has, and he turns it right on its head, and that's exactly what he says here. He says, you want to become wise? Want to be a wise man? Become a fool. That's the way it works in the kingdom of God, right? And then he begins to um, expand on this a little more. Look at verse 19. He says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. None of this is new to you. This is review. Wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. These two passages, these two references, come from uh, Job and from Psalms. And he uses those references to show us that we cannot expect to operate like the world operates. We cannot expect to operate under the same system, the same kind of wisdom that the world operates under. We have a different kind of wisdom. One commentator said it uh, this way. He says, there is a wisdom, there is a certain wisdom that works for the world, but it will not work for the church. We cannot expect to operate like the world operates. We operate by faith, right? Resting in grace, trusting in God, submitting to his lordship in our lives. We don't operate like the world operates. There is a different wisdom. And then in verse 21, what he does is he goes back to the divisions. Look at this, how he brings it all together. We've got symptom of divisions. We've got a symptom of lack of wisdom. And look at verse 21, how he brings them together. So he says, so then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Boasting in men is what they're doing when they say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. They're boasting in men and they're wrapping their identity up in a man. And I think we don't necessarily struggle with that as much as we do some other kind of ministry, some kind of other kind of, of manifestation of God's work. We wrap ourselves up in it and we find our identity in it. Sometimes we find our identity in youth ministry. 
I'm part of the youth group. I'm not really part of the church. I'm part of the youth group. And if you're not part of the youth group, you're not really part of what we're doing here, right? We can easily get caught up in that. Or we can get caught up in senior adult ministry or median adult ministry or the nursery. We can get caught up in any kind of thing, right? In a style of music or a particular ministry of the music. I'm part of the band. I'm part of the choir. I'm part of the orchestra. And then we end up with a big fight between those three. It's ridiculous, isn't it? You want to have a fight between the youth group and the senior adult ministry? Nobody wants to see that, right? Nobody wants to see that, but yet we tend to find our identity in those things. And what Paul is saying here is he says, stop all of that. No one boasts. You should not boast in men because all things belong to you. Paul, Apollos, Peter, you don't belong to them. They belong to you. This changes everything, doesn't it? He says, you, you, you guys have said, I am of Paul. I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas. I belong to the choir. I belong to the nursery. I belong to the youth ministry. And you don't realize what he's saying here is that all of these things belong to you. They are all ultimately servants of God and servants of you. Helps to you. They belong to you. Don't find your identity in them. Find their identity in you and find your identity in Christ. Detract with this. This is gold. This is absolute gold. He says, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. We get that. But then he takes it a step further. He says, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to you. Whew. That's good. All things belong to you. And I'm so glad he doesn't stop there because if he stopped there, we would all go out of here with heads so big we couldn't fit through the door, right? We would all go out of here puffed up in pride and say, all things belong to me. It all belongs to me. It's not exactly the attitude he's looking for. He wants to tell them, though, that they've got it backwards. They don't belong to these things. These things belong to them. And then notice what he does next. This is, this is absolutely brilliant. He says, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ. This tempers any kind of pride that we might take in the fact that all things belong to us. All things belong to us, and by the way, you belong to Christ. And by the way, Christ belongs to God. What I want you to see in that statement, this idea that all things belong to you, you belong to Christ, Christ belongs to God, I want you to see that in that statement there is a beautiful picture of privilege. There is a wonderful picture of privilege. It is good to be a child of the King, right? It is so good to be a child of the king, and we enjoy wonderful privileges as children of the king, right? But if all you ever know is the privilege of being a child of the king and not the responsibility or not the humility of being a child of the king, you become a spoiled brat, right? So we enjoy wonderful privilege as children of the king, but we also need to see the humility of being a child of the king. And that's why he says, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ. Don't forget that. You belong to Christ. You are his possession. You are his servant. You are his slave. And that's how you exercise your privilege in the context of your servanthood to Christ. Tracking with me? So we see privilege, we see humility, and then we see security. Look what he says. He says, all things belong to you. You belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. That's security. I, I want my, my, my pastor's wife growing up, I remember this vividly. We were, at a, we were at the campus of Texas Christian University on a mission trip. 
uh, sitting in this like commons hall area, and she was doing the devotion for the night, and she had some envelopes, and she tried to illustrate this idea of us belonging to Christ and Christ belonging to God, and she took a slip of paper that had her name on it, and she put it in an envelope that was labeled Christ, and she says, you are in Christ, you belong to Christ, right, and she sealed it up. And then she put that envelope that had Christ, that represented Christ, that had us in it, and put that envelope in God. That's some serious security, right? It's like a double layer of security, and she left out the Holy Spirit. We are very much secure in God, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit. We don't have anything to worry about, right? If we really belong to Him, we are absolutely secure. I want you to see that that last phrase that Paul strings together, that we could just easily skip over and say, oh, that's pretty, is actually a revelation of privilege and humility and security. Three principles that should guide our life every day, right? We, we don't need to live as if we are not privileged children of the king. We are. I think, I think Aaron, I think I listened to his message from a few weeks ago when I was gone. He told a story about Queen Elizabeth saying, I'm nobody, but my father is the king, uh, right? We don't need to forget that we are children of the king, but we also need to live with that kind of humility that we recognize that it's not about us. We're not special because of us. We're special because of our Father. We're special of who we belong to. So there's privilege and there's humility and there's this security of being in Him and Him and God. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. Okay? All right. Three applications today and then we're done. Number one is this. We, we, (laughs) y'all, we, it's plural, not I, not you, Ewans, right? Be more Southern Illinois, you guys. We are the temple. God's Spirit dwells here. This is a big deal. This is a very big deal. First Baptist Church is a very big deal in the kingdom of God. We need to be very careful. It is such a big deal that we need to be very careful. We are the temple. The Spirit dwells here. That can be good news or bad news. But we are the temple. Number two is a question. And the question is, are you building that temple or are you tearing it down? Are you building that temple or are you tearing it down? I told you that God is very patient, right? He's very patient with us. He's been very patient with the Corinthians, has he not? And you're going to learn in chapter 11 that he has lost some of his patience. Some of his patience is lost. He's going to say at one point in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that there are some people who are sick. There are some people who are dead at the church at Corinth because of their disobedience to him. Because of their shun, their blasphemy, their sacrilege of the Lord's Supper. He's not patient forever. He's not to be trifled with. He is very patient. We're thankful for that, right? But we don't need to abuse that patience. The question is, are you building or tearing down? And I think in some sense we need to deal with that internally. I think rare is the day when you can look at someone else and say, you are tearing it down. I think that happens. John was able to do that. Paul is able to do that in some other places. I think sometimes the evidence is so clear that it's easy to say, you're not building it, you're tearing it down. But I think we all need to wrestle with it ourselves. Are you building it or are you tearing it down? That's application number two, and application number three is good news. We haven't had a lot of that today, have we? Good news is this. God alone has the power to convert someone from a terror to a builder. 
And there is no greater example of that fact than Paul himself. You've got to realize when he's writing this, he knows. He knows exactly what it's like to want to tear down the church, right? That's what he was on his way to do. He was on his way to Damascus to tear down the church. He built a life around tearing down the church. He was a professional church terror downer. That's what he did. He was known for it. And he met Jesus and everything changed. I'm tell, I, want, I want you to hear this. You can, I don't think from this text that you can be a terror downer of the church and legitimately be a Christian. I don't think it can happen. Because if you love Christ, you'll love his church. If you love Christ, you'll love his church. Paul didn't love Christ, and therefore he didn't love the church. And when he met Christ and came to love Christ, he started loving the church, right? He ended up in Damascus. You remember that? He ended up there, and what did he do? Preached the gospel there, right? Met with the believers there, got to know the church there, helped the church there. Would you have ever expected that? No. Why did he do that? Because God had changed his life. God alone has the power to convert someone from a terror to a builder, and he did it with Paul, and he can do it with you. He can do it with you. And he's the only hope that we have, right? You can't convert yourself from a terror to a builder. God can change your heart, though. God can change your heart. Run to him. Confess your sins to him. He said to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Maybe somebody in this room today needs to hear that voice. Speak to them. Why are you doing this? Why are you tearing it down? Why are you persecuting it? Why? And he says, who are you, Lord? And then everything changes, right? That's what we want people to experience. And again, I think we all need to wrestle with this today. If, if you hear all of this today, you hear that last statement, you say, oh yeah, he's, he's got his finger pointed at so-and-so. Oh, I hope so-and-so hears this. Or I wish so-and-so was listening to this. You're missing it. You're missing it. We all need to wrestle with this. Are you building it or tearing it down? Let's build it. Let's grow. The foundation has been laid. The gospel has been poured out. Let's build on it. Let's stand together and pray. God, we recognize before you today that it is nothing but an act of grace that we are your temple that your spirit dwells here with us, in us, in fact. God, we are nothing. We are sinful, blasphemous, persecutors of the church. We tear it down. We certainly don't deserve an offer of grace an offer of forgiveness, but that is exactly what you have offered. You sent your son to die for us. You sent your son to be the substitute, to take the punishment for us. And he did. He took our sins upon himself, suffered your wrath in our place, and died the death that we all deserve. And more than die, he was raised from the dead. And he is victorious over sin. 
our sin. He is victorious over death, our death. He is victorious over hell that we deserve. And in your goodness, God, you have offered us reconciliation. You have offered us forgiveness and eternal life by your grace as a gift through faith. Not by works, or else we would boast, but by grace as a wonderful and free gift. God, thank you for that good news. And I pray for anyone in this room today who doesn't know that good news as their own, doesn't embrace it as truth and hope for them. I pray that today would be the day you get their attention like you got Paul's attention on the road to Damascus, like you got my attention when I was a little boy. That you would get a hold of their hearts today and you would change them by your grace, by your power, and for your glory. And God, I pray for your church today. Those who do know grace, those who are in covenant relationship with you through faith in Jesus Christ, God, I pray that we will build, that we will be careful how we build, but that we will build through your name, for your kingdom, and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.